Uh, welcome to church. It's just nice to be together as a family. I heard about one guy. He loved church so much that he became a monk and he went and joined a silent monastery. And um, the only person who was allowed to talk was the senior monk. Anyhow, 10 years went by and every 10 years you're allowed to say two words. Only two words. So the first 10 years go by and he stands up at dinner and he just says, food bad. He sits back down. Another 10 years goes by, his opportunity gets up, he finally gets there and he just says, bed hard. Anyhow, another 10 years goes by, he's really sick of it by this stage, he gets up, two words, he says, I quit. And the head monk looks at him and goes, well, I'm not surprised, all you've done since you've got here is complain. All right, well, this is not a silent monastery, is it? Uh, Great to have Chris on board, and we're really excited about all the life that he is going to bring to the church, and uh, lots going on in the next month and a bit. Well, we are finally approaching the end of our series in the book of Acts. This is the second last week. Next week, uh, Andrew Robertson's going to be finishing it off, and it's going to be a bit of an Africa week, because a bunch of us did go to Kenya this year. And we had a very kind of Book of Acts experience while we were there. So he's going to be preaching the final sermon in our series. And actually in November, on Friday the 15th, we're going to be having a fundraising party here at Manly Life. Again, Felix is busy. He's going to be DJing. It's going to be a silent auction and food and drink. And we're going to raise money for By Grace. You know, that orphanage that I was very impacted by. So we're going to hope to have you know, hundreds of people here that night and raise lots of thousands of dollars for those kids. I said at the start of the series that the book of Acts, it's a good name, but John Stott, the evangelical leader, he suggested it should be called the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through his apostles. But that was a bit complicated. So we've gone with the book of Acts. But really that's what it's about. This is about the ministry and life of Jesus continuing into the world. And there's some very obvious parallelisms in Acts. So things that Jesus does, the apostles now do in Acts. And what we've been saying is not only does it finish at chapter 28, but all through Christian history, there have been examples and stories of the things that happen in the book of Acts happening through the church. And more so than that, of course, what we believe is that even today, even here in Manly, the same things that Jesus did that happened in Acts, that has happened in history, are happening today. Miracles, acts of great compassion and mercy, people hearing the gospel, responding and having their lives turned around. So anyhow, last week we were in Athens with the Apostle Paul. Uh, Was that helpful last week? Uh, I found it interesting But you see this shift in mission. Like Jesus was Jewish, his first disciples were all Jewish. And mission at the start is basically to Jewish people. But remember, Jesus had said in the book of Acts that you'll be my witnesses to my, you know, the kingdom of God, my my death, my resurrection. You'll be my witnesses to take that news to Jerusalem, to Judea, but also to the ends of the earth. And so that's what happens. Mission begins to shift halfway through the book of Acts from the Jewish-speaking world and now into the Greek-speaking world, which was controlled by the Roman Empire. We had that week on Cornelius, didn't we, where the great verse is that now Peter gets up and he says, I now know that God shows no favouritism. 
And that was always the intention that, you know, even if you go back to, to Genesis 12, the whole purpose of God creating a family was that that might be a blessing to all the other nations, that all others would come in under that light. So Paul preaches in Athens. He talks about general revelation. There's a God you worship, you know him. But then he gets a special revelation. He says, now let me make the God who you've even got an altar to the unknown God. Let me make him clear to you. And so he preaches Jesus, the clearest revelation of who God is and good news for all mankind. All right. So my last week in the book of Acts in chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. Let's have a look. It says, if you've got your Bibles, feel free to have it open. If you've got an actual one of those. Do you remember the paper Bibles? Oh, Jen's got one. There you go. Actually, Donald found in one of the drawers the biggest Bible in the world. So it belongs here at Manly Baptist. It's like that big. So if you've got bad eyes, we'll get you the church Bible. It is in King James, though. So I'll read this in King James. Thee, therefore, after this. No, no, I won't do that. All right, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said, Your blood be on your heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Even though the very next chapter he does go to another synagogue. But anyhow, verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and he went next door to the house of Titius Justus a worshipper of God. And Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He said, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Amen. So Paul actually has an incredibly fruitful ministry over the span of a year and a half in the city of Corinth. Um, So Robbo is going to finish off the series next week. But the reason I wanted to do my last sermon in Acts is I am fascinated by the church in Corinth. Of all the churches that get established through the New Testament period, we probably know the most about Corinth. Why? Because of Paul's subsequent letters. Uh, You'll find them in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where Paul, after this year and a half of ministry to Jews and to Greeks, he goes on, and then I think it's from the city of Ephesus, he writes these letters back to the church that he founded in the city of Corinth. And so it's an interesting time. While some describe what then ensues in Corinth subsequent to Paul's ministry that we know about because of these letters as a complete mess, I actually find great heart and encouragement. Because despite the mess that becomes evident in the church in Corinth over um, morality and divisions and moral scandals, 
what we still find is a church still in the grip of God's grace. And with Paul's help, they're still going to work it out. Working out what it means to go from a pretty immoral pagan background. That's where they heard the word of God. They're into all kinds of worship and practices. And then they become Christians. They become children of God. But it still takes a while to work out what it means to be a follower of Christ. So we read in those letters from Paul that they are once and forever loved by God due to the corrective nature of the word of God and the Holy Spirit. They're also able to be restored. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful. God is faithful. Thank God for that. Because no matter how messy our lives get or how messy our churches can even get, God is faithful. And he loves his local church. All right, so let's have a look at how the gospel came to Corinth. Then why I got into a mess. And I also want to say some things about women in the church, if that's okay. That made a few of you sit up. <laughs> so why did it all go so wrong for a church that in the book of Acts seems to be so encouraging? And I think it's to be found in the nature of the city that the church was planted into. Corinth was an amazing place at the time of the book of Acts. Uh, One scholar, a guy called Murphy O'Connor, he describes Corinth in Paul's day as a wide open boom town. He says it was like being in San Francisco during the gold rush. Okay, so there was great wealth and an influx of people and kind of anything went and there was all this immorality going on. The city had two harbours, so it became a commercial centre. And so seaborne merchandise was passing through the Mediterranean. It came through Corinth and it made the city incredibly diverse. People would travel to do their business from all over the Roman Empire in Corinth. And it's a bit like Vegas. When you're in Corinth, don't just do your business. Stop and have a good time as well. So Paul comes to Corinth and we read in 1 Corinthians 2-3 that he arrives in the city with weakness, fear, and much trembling. Why? Well, I think it's because his previous experiences in these big Greek-speaking Roman Empire towns had not been an overly warm reception. In Philippi, he'd been illegally beaten. Imagine that. You share the gospel with someone and you get beaten up. They threw him into prison. His labours in Thessalonica were fruitful, but the Jews soon stirred up a mob in opposition to him. And not longer, Paul found himself in Athens, the intellectual centre of the Roman Empire. And yeah, it bears fruit. People become Christians. But he also experiences the scorn of the sophisticated Athenian philosophers and intellectuals. So Paul leaves Athens. He makes the short journey down to Corinth. And he approaches this teeming city, aware of its notorious reputation. Uh, It was a bit of a curse word, but if you called someone in the ancient world a Corinthian, that wasn't being overly nice about the state of their morality. So I want to say a church will obviously inevitably reflect to some extent the society in which it exists. Okay? And so... The church in Corinth is going to be influenced by what's going on around it. The church in Sydney is inevitably going to be influenced by the kind of things that drive and motivate people and the challenges of life 
in a city like Sydney. But the question always becomes, is the church shaping the city or is the city shaping the church, right? Are we, as the church, having more of an influence on the godlessness and the immorality and and preaching the good news? Or actually, is the atmosphere and the culture of the city so pervasive and so strong that it actually gets a hold of the church and corrupts us? And of course, one of the tests is, do we look any different from our neighbours? Are we obsessed with the same wealth accumulation or the same morality issues or the same selfishness or whatever it might be that infects the atmosphere and the mood of a city? Is that affecting the church or are we affecting the city? Amen? You with me? All right. Now, hopefully, though, of course, we're going to be different and set apart in a good way. But we may also reflect some of the challenges of the city. Now, the church in Corinth, I'll just say it straight out, it existed in a grossly sinful atmosphere of sexual looseness, which continued to make its mark on the church. So many of the problems that we read about in the letter to the Corinthians by Paul are found also in the city that it existed in. The most prominent site in Corinth was the Temple of Aphrodite, a symbol of lust which pervaded the city. Uh, In ancient Corinth, um, the temple was maintained by a thousand priestesses. But really what historians say is these women amounted to not much more than common prostitutes. So when you went to worship at the temple, you'd also sleep with the priestesses. So the attitude of the city towards immorality involved no condemnation whatever. On the contrary, it was considered to be a normal part of life. Hello? Does that sound like Sydney? I mean, it's kind of our city, right? Where we, 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 we celebrate immorality. We celebrate greed. We, we celebrate climbing over people to get ahead. And it's not even condemned. It's just... This is what life should look like in the big smoke. I love Tim Keller's quote about the Greeks I read last week. He says, The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And then the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. That's good. And maybe that's what we're called to do again, to be so set apart in the way that we live and do our God-given sexuality. And then we're just like stinkingly, obviously generous. We open our homes, we put on meals, we give away to the poor, right? Anyhow. You get the point. Now, in this great, busy, uh, great and busy centre, Paul spent a year and a half in the course of his second missionary journey. He arrives in the city around 50 AD. He finds hospitality in the home of a Jewish couple who'd been expelled from Rome by, the, at the time, the emperor, Claudius. But he was a cool dude. And uh, they kicked them out, and so they arrived in Corinth as well. And Paul carries on his trade of tent making amongst them. But while he's working, so as not to be a burden, he's regularly preaching the good news in the synagogues. 
Now, Paul's soon compelled by the opposition of the Jews to seek another place of meeting, which he found in the house of justice, a converted Gentile. So he preached the gospel and he does it encouraged by a vision from God that we read about in the passage. Now, in such a place, Lucy Loose, like this is a loose town, by the grace of God and by the ministry of Paul, a church is formed. Now, a large proportion of its members must have been drawn from the pagan world with its immoral standards of life and conduct. And so what seems to have happened was those loose attitudes that they had before hearing the gospel begins to pervade into the life of the church. So some messy things begin to emerge. And that's why in the letters Paul writes to them, we read about a case of incest even happening in the church, questions about Christian views of marriage. Sadly, there was a divisive spirit that divided the church into rival groups and it showed itself in bickering that even drew them to take each other to the civil courts, right? They couldn't work out their divisions and they'd even go to courts. And that kind of rivalry between groups destroyed the unity of the church, even when it came to eating together and having communion. Now, most of the members of the church were Greek and the strict morality of the Jews or the newfound Christian faith, it was just foreign to them, right? They found it difficult to understand what they once considered as virtue was now being called sin. And I think ministry is like this. I sometimes joke to other ministers that, I'm not not trying to offend you all, but ministry in Manly is like trying to unscramble an egg. You know, it's like, particularly if adults are becoming Christians, there's going to be some unscrambling to be done, right? It's not like you become a follower of Christ and then, wacko, you're now a saint with no issues, right? Um, And we want to see adults become Christians, but it's probably a case that they've walked down some paths that we wouldn't consider um, God's will for their lives. So, there's a whole range of things that gracefully, patiently, by the grace of God, need to get sorted out. And that's what happens. That's what happens. Like, don't beat yourself up, right? We don't become Christians and become immediately saints. It's a process. Would you say that about your life? Are you a finished product? If you are, you can have my job. Because I'm not. Nicky Gumbel had a great line in Alpha on Thursday. He said, you know, just because you're a Christian doesn't make you better than other people. But hopefully it's making you a better version of you. Isn't that good? So we've got no grounds to be judging other people. Uh, Particularly not outside the church, but even inside the church. You know, the question is not, are you better than someone else? It's, are you personally better than you were before coming to know Christ? So hopefully this whole Jesus thing is making you a better person, people. All right. Now, before we finish talking about Corinth, being part of a local church, even in the mess, I just want to say a few things on women in the church. Is that okay? No one walked out this morning, so that was okay. You probably know my position because Victoria preached two weeks ago. But anyhow, I bring it up because it can be a confusing area, right? And there are differing texts in the New Testament and views 
and it can cause divisions. Even in a city like ours, there aren't going to be churches that hold different views to manly life. And, you know, I'll challenge them and discuss that with them, but there is a diversity of views around this issue. But I bring it up because here in Corinth we meet an amazing couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who together are leading and teaching the church. In the New Testament, who's the first preacher of the good news of the resurrection? It's Mary. Mary runs back and tells the disciples that he has risen from the dead. She is joined by a female apostle who Paul refers to in the book of Romans as outstanding among the apostles. A woman named Junius. And there is another lady called Phoebe who is also a leader in the New Testament church. So for the first time, a movement was being launched into the world where women were as valued as men. And of course, it's all in fulfilment of the promise in Acts of Pentecost of the prophet Joel. And in Acts, Peter uses this promise from God to describe why the spirit of God's being poured out. And he gets up and he reads about how with the Holy Spirit, both men and women will minister. He says, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in these days and they will prophesy. You cannot understand ministry and prophesying other than speaking, other than getting up and giving the word of God. You know, in the ancient world, the place of women was pretty low. Ben Sirach, a Jewish teacher, 200 BC, reflects the very negative view of women. He says... Better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. I bet he didn't get dinner that night. He said that. (laughs) But that's how people at the time perceived women. Come to the Talmud, an ancient Jewish text. It says, woe to him whose children is female. And of course, that's not just an ancient view. Sadly, The practice around the world of aborting females because people would prefer a male child continues. I don't know what the stats are in China, but there's a huge higher percentage of males in China because of decades of aborting female babies. The Greek world was no better. Socrates. Did anyone study Socrates at uni? No, just me. Okay, that's fine. Whatevs. Uh, I think I studied Socrates. Beloved philosopher in universities around the world. He said that he counted three blessings in his life. There was three things that Socrates was grateful for. First, that I was born a human and not a beast. Second, that I was born a man and not a woman. And third, that I was born a Greek and not a barbarian. So women, you, you knew your place in the ancient world, right? It wasn't great. In a place like Corinth, men married at 30, women at about 18. By the time of marriage, a man was experienced, having slept with many women, including prostitutes. One ancient historian noted, we attend prostitutes for our daily needs and a wife to bear us children. Now hear this. Get ready. Put your listening ears on, okay? Because this is what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? 
into that ancient world comes Jesus and the way he treats women and ministers to them. And then Paul and these kind of statements. And this is the beginning of equality women. You know, church has not always got it right throughout its history, but we cannot get past these texts that say that we are one, that we are all image bearers of God and equal in Christ Jesus. So are there difficult texts in the New Testament about women not speaking and so on? Yes, there are. But for me, the overwhelming evidence is that we live in the age of the Spirit where God enables both men and women to minister and to teach and to play every role within the church. And in this passage, in Acts 18, a little bit further on, we find Priscilla, who's become a Christian, teaching a guy called Apollos and further explaining to him what it says are the ways of God. So I think these other controversial passages, I believe, are answered by understanding the cultural context in which they are written. And of course, they should be read in light of the fact that there are heaps of examples in the New Testament, in church history, and today, women are powerfully ministering, extending the kingdom of God, leading in the church, and just being incredible witnesses to Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's my lens. If you, if you, if you still struggle with that, come and see me. I mean, I grew up in a church where women didn't teach or preach, or I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't see any women do anything. And so I had to kind of wrestle with this stuff and come around to this view. But I believe it's scriptural, and I believe that I'd love to just chat about with you if you're struggling with it. So as Galatians says, the old things that have kept people apart, that have kept groups oppressed and separated, have been broken down, ethnicity, status, and gender divisions are gone, all are one in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let me finish my last two minutes. Let's finish with the church in Corinth and just how do we navigate the good, the bad and the ugly of local church life? As I've already said, this was a fruitful year and a half of ministry for Paul. And it becomes clear in his letters to the church he established in Corinth that a lot of issues developed. You could say that. If you've been around the church for longer than Australia will last in the Rugby World Cup, you know that these are amazing communities. Local churches are amazing. There is nothing like them. But they can also be broken and fragile and messy. I've heard jokingly said, if you're looking for a perfect church, your joining it will spoil that. It's true, isn't it? Because we bring our mess. We bring our fragility. Like the Corinths, we come with cultural stuff and family of origin stuff and brokenness and mess. And you put it in the petri dish of the local church and you stir it all about and amazing things happen. But bad things can happen as well. I just reflect that churches are full of broken people like you and me. And we're shaped as much by the city we live in sometimes as by the good news of the gospel. We are all scrambled eggs, are we not? That God is trying to put back together. So we come like the Corinthians with broken sexuality, with natures given to divisiveness and gossip and selfishness. We get hurt, but we probably hurt other people as well. But oh my gosh, can I just say this? I'm a minister because I love the local church. 
You know, I was that guy who just was always at every church thing. And so eventually, I guess they gave me a job. But the reason I was at everything is I just love church. This is the place where the lonely can be befriended, where the sick can be healed, where those who are in a dark place can find a light, where we can find a purpose beyond just our selfish ambitions to serve and to love others and to become generous. So when we commit to this being a place of healing and grace and transformation, amazing things can occur. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds him in chapter 1 that we are called to be his holy people. So if you're wallowing in sin, don't stay there. We are called to be put back together, to become holy. He says we've been enriched in every way. So you've, you're given what you need to do that as well. And he says God will keep you firm to the end. And so Paul, speaking the word of God, corrects them lovingly back into alignment with Jesus. So I guess that's my encouragement. As I finish my last sermon in Acts, we've been at it since Easter, is that what we get joined into when we become followers of Jesus is the family of God. We've seen in Acts how amazing that can be. There can be miracles. There can be incredible love and mercy and acts of generosity. People getting saved, people getting set apart for a brand new life. We've also seen in Acts it can be messy, there can be persecution, there can be divisions and hurt that happens in the church. But when we commit, and if we're willing to align ourselves with the work of the Holy Spirit, I really believe amazing things can happen in this family. When I started this series in Acts, I quoted Arthur Pearson, who he wrote in his commentary on Acts in 1895. Church of Christ, the record of the Acts of the Holy Spirit have never reached completeness. This is the one book that has no close because it waits for new chapters to be added so fast and so far as the people of God shall reinstate the blessed spirit in his holy seat of control. Amen.